Good afternoon and thank you and welcome to STEM Tea Podcast. Today I have two exciting individuals with us that are going to introduce themselves and they're from UT Southwestern. They have a variety of different titles and topics that they want to talk about today. Remember today's focus is on mentoring like it always is, but this time it's specifically focused on first-gen mentoring, which is going to be something of a focus that's a specialty. So in the audience, I just want you to realize that there are different types of mentoring like we've discussed before. And today's topic is focusing on how to specifically handle students that are first generation that are at the undergraduate, graduate level, or even at the faculty level. So this is a very important concept for us to really kind of think about as we digest mentoring, because mentoring is multifaceted, it's holistic and authentic, but also intentional. And that even means how to actually authentically align ourselves with intentional mentoring in the context of first-gen mentoring. I would like for Dr. Hartman, can you go first in introducing who you are and then you just call on the next individual that's on the phone with us today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay. So my name is Keisha Nicole Hardiman. I'm a postdoc at UT Southwestern. So I got my bachelor's degree in molecular and cell biology from Texas A&M University out in College Station, Texas. Actually, I worked as a high school teacher at some point, but later on went back to grad school. And I got my doctorate at Vanderbilt University in cancer biology. Since then, you know, I've been working as a provide scholar at UT Southwestern. So provides is like the provost initiative for diversity and inclusion. So I work there along with about six other provide scholars. And the focus is to have us build our research so that we can become professors either there or other places. So I study the mitochondria, mostly. I work with a great geneticist, essentially, but I consider myself a bioenergeticist, basically looking at how cells respond metabolically to different types of drugs and so forth. Right now, I am a Burroughs Welcome Fund scholar as well. I also sit nationally as a board member and chair of the National Black Postdoc Association, and I know at UT Southwestern, we're one of about 10 schools so far that we're starting up our own chapter to have an NBPA. So I'm very excited about that. You know, it's very good to have programming like that to help students and so forth. Thank you so very much. And then could the other individual introduce themselves? Well, well, thank you. Thank you, AJ. And I really appreciate the opportunity. My name is Arnaldo Diaz um, Vasquez. I have two last names. I'm from Puerto Rico. I am the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Same institution as Keisha Harriman. I'm from a really, really small town in Puerto Rico. First gen college student. And I mean, first in the family to achieve a bachelor's degree. And then I came to the United States back in 2002 to pursue a PhD. And I'm surprised here that I, I got my PhD at Texas A&M, the same school Keisha got her undergraduate degree. So I got my PhD in biochemistry and biophysics, then moved to the University of Pennsylvania for a postdoctoral fellowship in cancer pharmacology. And there I did a switch in my career. I started working more in higher ed administration. And the reason that I did that is because I felt that I wanted to stay in the academic setting, but I wanted to contribute from a different angle. 
And I wanted to bring myself to my position, my experiences. I mean, the lack of resources, the lack of mentoring, the lack of awareness. I wanted to bring all of that into my role and contribute that for other students don't have to go through the same challenges that I did growing up. Now I, I was at Penn for 12 years, an amazing institution, did a lot of things at Penn. Now I'm at UT Southwestern where I direct programs, research training programs for undergraduate students, but also we direct programs for postdoc students and co-direct the provides program with Dr. Russell DeVos Boys, the program that, that Keisha is a fellow now. I'm excited to be part of these conversations. I think we have to have this kind of conversation to talk about first-gen college students and how we can help them achieve their goals. So back to you, AJ. The first question that I have for both of you all is what is first-gen mentoring? I know that you're talking about it a lot, but for the audience, just so that we're all on the same page, what does that mean to either one of you? So there are, I mean, several definitions out there for what is first gen, I mean, college students. And there is also like first gen low income students. And there's also first gen PhD or MDs. In, in my, I mean, what I, I introduced myself as a first gen is because I'm the first one in my family. My parents didn't have a bachelor's degree. I'm the first generation in my family getting a, a bachelor's degree. Yes, exactly. And I agree with him as well. I'm also the first person in my family to get a bachelor's degree and, of course, a doctorate. But even then, I've talked, I guess, recently with my own mother about because she went to school to become a licensed vocational nurse, which actually that takes a bit of a schooling. But they don't, they actually just get, say, a certificate at the end of, I think it was six months or maybe 12 months. And that's not generally considered these days as part of, you know, the first gen. So yeah, you know, when you're talking about the mentoring, we're talking about mentoring people where they're the only ones in their family that have gone through it. And that they go through basically different types of struggles, you know, having to explain different things to their families that their family may not understand or may not get, but it's just sort of like, that's what we go through. That's what we experience. So I know that you're talking about basically they're the first person in their family to go to college or the first person to go to graduate school. What does that really mean, you know, in the context of struggles that someone may have adjusting to college or at the graduate level in the context of being first gen? That's a fantastic question. First, the curriculum itself is challenging, but it's everything else, right? The experience as an undergrad or grad students is not just the courses. You know, I was the valedictorian in high school, so I was I felt I was ready for college in terms of the courses, but I, I didn't know how to navigate the institution. I didn't know who to reach out. I didn't know how to reach out. I didn't know, I mean, what a mentor was. I didn't need one coming from a really small town. I didn't know what research was. So there is a lot of things that are hard to navigate because they're unknowns to you. You didn't even know, I mean, to ask for something that you don't know what it is, right? So, I mean, so that's that's the challenge from going to office hours with faculty. You don't know how to reach out to the faculty. You're afraid of asking a question because it might be trivial for others, but not for you. So you're afraid of asking that question. Then, I mean, as a mentor, it's really important, you know, that your body language, right? Your, I mean, it's important when a student asks a question, you as a mentor has to be first listen and to be aware that it might not be a challenge for you or was not a challenge for you, but it might be something that is difficult for that specific student. 
So it's like from, you know, balancing work, I mean, study and the financial stress that sometimes bring this to you and your family, like not knowing, I mean, how to, you know, the pressure that you carry when you're in school and say, you know, I don't want to fail because if I fail, my family is failing with me. So that's another level of stress. And I don't think our universities or systems are equipped to handle all these, I mean, levels of complexity that first-gen students in college. That doesn't go away when you go to grad school or medical school. And that doesn't go away when you go to as a faculty, uh, in a faculty role. So the challenges and fears that you go through as an undergrad is probably similar as a grad student, similar as a faculty. And I think it's important that we first are open about sharing that we're first gen because that will empower students coming up and that we are open about sharing our struggles. And I think that will be key, I mean, moving forward. But it is challenging in many aspects. I mean, you know, finding, making a doctor's appointment. Oh, Lord. I mean, making, I mean, filing your taxes, I mean, for the first time. Or setting up a meeting with a faculty to do research, but you don't even know what to ask. Because you don't know, you don't have someone else to ask, what should I be asking? Or if you have a faculty offer, what should I be asking for? I mean, no one in my family or my immediate circle knows. So why I'm supposed to know? So it, it's things like that. So it is very complex and it is something that we, we should speak more about. Yes, yes. I agree with Arnaldo. also want to like touch more on some of the financial problems as well. You know, especially in when you're in academia, it's very important to at least go to a conference every one or two years. So I actually read about people online who they go their entire time and finish a large degree, finish their doctorate, and they just did not, they were not supported to go anywhere. And many times too, your PIs may expect you to pay up front. And it's not like you have that money to be able to put airfare and hotel and all of that and just wait for a reimbursement. So, you know, being able to navigate this whole thing, basically, being knowing who to ask to be like, hey, you know, can you guys pay for this part first for me or do X, Y, Z? which you can in some circumstances. So yeah, that I think is part of being a first-gen. That's a great point, Keisha, because I'm a first-gen from a low-income background. Yes. And I remember my dad taking a loan, and that was my graduation gift as an undergrad, a loan that my dad took so I can move to the United States to pursue my PhD. That loan went away the first few weeks in Texas. Because I needed to buy a bed to sleep and I needed to buy my first groceries. So that $2,000 went out quickly. And then there is a, something that this is probably more personal to me. And Kisha can comment on this, but it's the fear of money. I mean, the fear of getting in debt. Coming up from a low income background, you're always, I mean, <laughs> struggling, I mean, to find financially. And you don't, you don't know how to, I mean... I mean, you're afraid of taking a loan. You're afraid of borrowing money because you don't want to go through the struggles that your family probably went through. So it is challenging. I mean, it is sometimes really heavy to carry. But I mean, that's why it's important to to speak up and share with students and faculty and postdocs so they don't feel that they're the only ones going through this. And there is no shame. I'm always on my first-gen low-income background. There is no shame. 
it's important that we highlight those things. Yeah, I completely agree. I know postdocs online that they admit even now they're like losing money. They pay for their costs. They pay for their kids going into daycare. Every month they feel like they're losing money. So this is actually a real problem. And then, of course, for you to do academic training, to go meet someone or go to a conference, you have to be able to balance that, be able to do those things all together. So absolutely. So do you think that it ends once you're a postdoc? If you're a first gen, you know, faculty member, how does that work? You know, as well, since you're talking about graduate, undergrad and postdoc and you're talking about resources and other things, do you think that institutions that are hiring these individuals should provide maybe some additional resources in the context of maybe funds to be able to pay up front or other opportunities to have petty cash to be able to go ahead and pay or P card. Could you talk about how resources could be better at the faculty level? And then also at the postdoc level, you know, what types of innovative policies could be something that could be used to combat some of the challenges that first-gen students have and postdocs? You know, at the faculty level, um, there is costs associated with interviews, right? When you apply for jobs, and there's costs, I mean, of traveling, setting up, you know, I mean, what to wear, I mean, going to places, hotels. I mean, most of the people that are inviting you for interview, they might be covering some of the costs, but it's all, there's always expenses that you have to take on. And for positions like this, you have to be applying broadly, right? You might be doing several interviews. So I think there have to be a mechanisms to provide additional support. I mean, same for postdocs when you're interviewing, I mean, or you're looking for postdocs, so you're up, so there's costs. In terms of the university, I feel, I mean, places, and I think several institutions do a great job, but it's, there is always room to do more, right? And it means like, you know, helping you set up. It doesn't have to be just financial support. It should be just support, supporting, you know, helping you put a budget together. Hiring people. When you start a faculty, I don't have a lot, but when you start a faculty job, it's not just the science. The science becomes probably the less complicated part. <laughs> it's like the hiring. I mean, now you're responsible to bring money to bring students. Now it's not just you. It's like you and your team. It's like the hiring, the, the, then depending on the institution, you might have some teaching responsibility. So it's the workload. I mean, are we, are we providing the newer faculty with protected time? And then, I mean, it's, then there's something that is hard for first gen, in my opinion, it is it's networking, right? And now you're a faculty or a postdoc and you have to network. But have you been coached on how to, how to properly network? I mean, with people in your field. Are you being supported to attend workshops on professionalism? I mean, building skills. So things like that, I think, I mean, when we feel, when we think about support, people usually think financial, but there is a lot of support that postdoc, grad students and faculty needs that are not necessarily attached to money. It might be like, you know, a center at the institution for skill building for faculty. So things like that, I think we have to do better. And I think we're doing, I mean, with this news initiative, with the, and I, I mean, with some of the grants that is, I mean, set up by the National Institute of Health, you know, to, to bring cohorts of faculty. And there's a, a lot of resources out there, but we could do more as a community to support faculty in general, but especially faculty that are first gen, because they're the first one. So they're making a path 
or others in their family <laughs> to come. So that's heavy to carry. And I think I'm very proud of, I mean, I know, I know a lot of first-gen faculty and through social media have connected to many, many others. And I think it's important that we keep talking about this because institutions cannot do something that they haven't heard. So I think the more that we can talk about it, at least will help moving us in the right direction. You know, one of the things that I was also thinking about is I've met, I've met many people and not only are you surprised to find out that one or both of their parents have a degree, but many of them may even have doctorates as well, their own parents. When you think about that, that also isolates you as a student, or at least for me, it isolated me a lot because you're going to school and working with these people. And, you know, I don't want to say it, but it's sort of like, oh, they go out of town every month to go visit someplace. You know, they just have that type of money. Whereas for you, you are just trying to live every paycheck to paycheck, honestly. And then, of course, you're both working hard and trying to do your science as best as you can. So, yeah, it's such a a complicated sort of thing. You know, I agree with everything that Arnaldo just said, but also, too, is just sort of how different it is, how different you can be to other people, not just race or or gender, but even just socioeconomically. Yeah. And that paycheck sometimes is for you, but also for your family. Because, exactly. I mean, I often send money back home and because that's the, it's the guilt. You feel guilty that you left your family behind to pursue your dreams. That guilt is always present. And those paychecks that came monthly were for me, but also to support family. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, grad students, we don't make, I mean, when I was a grad student, we don't make much money, but you make more than your parents. And in a way, you feel that you had to give back. And that's something that is, I mean, that me as a first-gen low-income individual always felt the need that to give back. I agree. I mean, I've heard a lot of times where students have to help parents and it makes it economically challenging to be able to do the things that they need to do. And then also when it's going to multiple people, I've had, you know, first gen faculty that I've mentored in the past and they've talked about how their check is being split in five different ways. And it's hard to make ends meet because they have to help this family member that's going through this or they have to help this person and they have to help their parents. So it's, it can be very challenging. One of the things that could help combat that is great mentorship. Arnaldo, you know, congratulations on an award I saw on Twitter. You know, you have to tell me about that award, but it's around mentorship. And so I was wondering how mentors could help alleviate some of those burdens around first generational challenges. And Keisha, of course, I want to hear your opinion as well, because it seems like you have a good grasp on this, too. Thank you. Thank you, AJ. So I recently, I mean, was honored to receive two awards. One from Vanderbilt uh, for, I mean, National and uh, Hispanic Heritage Month of Best Mentor, and also from SACNAS, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, I mean, Mentoring Award. That award meant a lot because it recognized, you know, sometimes you do this because, I mean, I do it because I love this, right? But when you are recognized, it's not just a celebration for me, but it's also empowering many, many others. I mean, little kids from Puerto Rico, that's where I'm from, or, or everywhere in the world that see you know, Hispanic, Latinx, I mean, scientists being recognized. And I think when I celebrate the awards, I do it 
for me and for the community. And I think that's something that we first gen, I have noticed that we celebrate everybody. <laughs> we celebrate when one of us win, we all win. And I think that that's the beauty of the community. And mentoring for me is really, really important because I didn't have that. Yes, I did have research advisors. I did have, I mean, program directors, but I didn't have anyone to sit down with me and say, these are the, the options. Let me listen to what you want. And I think that's the first part of mentoring, listening. You know, there's people telling you how to do this and this and this and that, but they haven't even taken the time to listen. So mentoring is more about listening. And a mentor, sometimes, I mean, sometimes, I mean, mentoring is, is a learning process and you're not, you're not going to know all the answers and you will never know all the answers. But it's up to you to keep learning and it's up to you to build a network that is going to empower you, but also to empower your mentees. So now I know that, I mean, I, I have a really good relation with AJs and Keisha, many, many others. When I have a student, I can direct the students to other great mentors. So mentoring is not taking ownership of your mentees. They are not yours. Mentoring is empowering them so they can take control of their own careers. And that means that they have, they have to connect with many, many other mentors because that's mentorship. I mean, you need a mentor. In my life, I have many, I'm being blessed with many, many mentors. There is mentors that I go and talk about specific topics. There is mentors that I just want them to listen to me. I don't want them to tell me anything. I just want you to listen. And I have mentors that are sponsors, right? Somebody that is talking about me in a room that I'm not there. And I have mentors that are kind of like my chill leaders <laughs> because you need all of those. You need also mentors that are going to be like really challenging. Like, hey, Arnaldo, you have to do this. Uh, if you don't do it like this, I mean, so you need that also like that type of mentoring. You need also the mentors that is going to be like, hey, Arnaldo, let, let's talk. They have a coffee. What's going on? But you need somebody else that is going to challenge you in a respectful way but to challenge you to keep moving forward. So so that's why it's important to share with the students early on, because this is something that I learned really late, early on of the importance of building a network of mentors. Outside, you know, there's professional, I have mentors that are in my professional space, but I also have mentors that are in my personal space. And it's important that you take control of your careers and you do that by connecting with people. Yes, I also agree with them, especially when he mentioned the listening portion. I know people may not see our faces or so forth, but we see each other. And I'm sure you saw me nodding and all of that. Um, you know, being able to listen to what that person is interested in, what they actually are excited about, that's important. And I remember when going through school, I didn't really have anyone listen to me until after I had gotten my bachelor's degree and was working actually at a smaller institution down in Corpus Christi, Texas. And working there, I had two or three of my professors who actually listened to me very well. They were female professors. Actually working with them and learning so much from them, that's what pushed me to want to become a doctor, actually having that type of experience. So definitely listening to your mentees is very important. Also, too, when he mentioned like all of your different mentors, that's actually a very good point, you know, because there are some people that, to be honest, the best thing they can do for you is to speak your name highly in order to promote you for 
something X, Y, and Z to help you. Whereas other people, they can actually help you with your science, for instance, or or answer those types of questions. Whereas someone else, maybe they have very good writing and they help you in a writing perspective. But yeah, the way that you think about different people, there are so many things that everyone can contribute and give to you, especially as a first-gen person that you can sort of embrace and take in. And I think a good mentor will also share the opportunities where their mentee is. And that's by active listening. So when I meet with Keisha, for example, we talk and talk and talk over coffee or lunch. And I I realized back then, oh, Keisha, Keisha, uh, like social media, an opportunity (laughs) came out and I say, Keisha, do you want to moderate a panel on the use of Twitter? I mean, for social media. So that comes like, yeah, the invitation was for me initially, but I said, no, this is a good opportunity for Keisha to also take the lead. So it's important as a mentor that you don't take all the opportunities for you. It's important that you also take the opportunities and share their, those with your mentees. Because that's, this is part of the training, training them to be leaders. So a good mentor will love to have their mentee, you know, you reach to point 100 in your career, you want your mentee to be 150. <laughs> It fills you with joy when you see that your mentee, I see, I mean, I started in this in back in 2010, I see now my mentees in really high positions and I'm so proud. So there's no jealousy in mentoring. And it's important that we as mentors just celebrate our students and share with them, you know, sponsor them. I mean, help them build a network. I don't have to do all the talks in my conferences. Maybe this is time to send a senior grad student to be the representative of the lab. Or maybe the postdoc should do this research talk. It's important that the mentors also share share the wealth, right, with the students and the mentees. And I think that's something that we have to keep reminding people because it's sometimes you get into your own bubble, but sometimes it's important that you share. It's not about just one-on-one mentoring in your office. You know, an opportunity come on to go to this conference in X whatever place. Oh, Keisha. Would you like to take the lead and represent our lab? So I think that's part of mentoring as well. That's beautiful from both of y'all. I mean, I agree so very much. Mentoring is about sharing. And, you know, you mentioned some things related to kind of understanding that there needs to be multiple mentors. I just want to, you know, interject and let everyone know that Veronda Montgomery's kind of invented this, you know, mentoring map. And I just want you all to kind of be aware that it's out there and it's a tool that could be able to help you organize your different types of mentors. For example, let's say you have Arnaldo and Keisha, they have different expertise. Keisha might mentor you on mitochondrial research. Arnaldo might mentor you specifically on how to engage in mentoring individuals, how to cultivate diversity, equity, inclusion, or enrichment. And so that's something that could be very important. So this brings me to my next point about how to be an advocate for having more than one mentor. I think it's important. And I think it's something that you both hit it on very well because it takes a village to really raise individuals. But one thing that I thought that was kind of interesting from what both of y'all said was there needs to be kind of some support at the institutional level. You hinted at this about advocacy. And so what I would like to ask both of y'all, starting with Keisha this time, because you had kind of started with that, is talking about how to advocate for first-gen individuals at the institutional level. What does that mean in the context of institutional support? Is it only resources in the context of monetary value? Or are there other things that you think that would be kind of important for individuals that are from first-gen or low-income backgrounds, as as Arnaldo has mentioned? What are your thoughts around that? 
I know, like, for instance, financially speaking, there are certain ways to be able to overcome specific barriers in order to help someone paying for something outright and just having that on the books. And then also to even paying for, say, a hotel fee and so forth. But interestingly, you know, I've been I've been actually in, I think, seven different institutions, actually. And no place has a single way of doing it. But none of them were able to, I would say, broadly pay for it, even though the money was there, which was why I was going. But none of them were able to do that, even though you could. I recently, my boss that I'm working with now, he's very great. And I was able to get airfare paid. And then afterwards, I asked about the hotel. And, you know, we had to have a little back and forth, even though that money exists and is there. It's in a grant. So it's there and exists. So being able to sort of have that solidified to where, you know, they do this automatically for a grad student, a postdoc, even the assistant professor too, being able to do this automatically for them would be very substantial and help everyone. As far as the community as to how they can all get together, I mean, you can actually set up groups of people to have, you know, their own, I don't want to say like a club or not whatnot, but they can actually have a community that they build together and work together. So that way they meet other people who come from a place where, you know, they're also first gen as well. And they can all be able to talk with one another, be able to share resources. But honestly, too, just getting to meet other people who have something something like you, that's just extremely important. I will add, like, you know, I mean, when we talk about financial, it could be long financial literacy, right? Sometimes incorporating programming in place, I mean, to skill building, right? How to do a budget. So that, I didn't know how to. How to, I mean, prioritize. How to identify opportunities and how to apply for those opportunities. Sometimes having having support to apply to fellowships, having supports to or where to go. Sometimes there might be some money, but you don't even know where or how to request that help. So having that support in place and having a, a center or office or individual on campus that is proactive on reaching out to the students, because sometimes sometimes mentees will not even reach out because they don't even know what to ask. So it's important that these are probably incorporated during orientation sessions, maybe during the first week of grad school or undergrad or faculty, they should be like included in your package. Maybe there should be a session of, we do like a session on financial literacy, maybe. So so they were proactive. Sometimes, I mean, when you go for, I came from the University of Puerto Rico, like Hispanic serving institution, everybody would look like me, right? I, I was not worried about walking into different, even though I was from the south part of the island, so I did feel like an imposter in the capital city, but uh, but everybody looked like me. It's like when you're coming from a minority serving institution, Hispanic serving institutions or, or HBCUs, historically black colleges and university. You know, sometimes you go to these big universities and the support is probably there, but you don't know how to find the support. <laughs> You're coming from a place in where everything is community-oriented, and there is a lot of centers and offices and cultural houses, and you go to a place that, oof, so many buildings, <laughs> which one is, or which floor, or which office? So they have to be more like a centralized 
center that help guide you, help you navigate the system. This is really good. One thing that I noticed was that you talked about imposter syndrome. And so how can mentors become more effective at creating compassion or just understanding how students are and kind of maybe generating some fervor inside of them to believe that they can do this? What are some tips that first generation mentors could do? You know, the first thing that I will always do is like avoid making assumptions. If I'm a, I mean, let's me, let's use me as an example. I started in grad school. I didn't speak the language. I was very, very quiet. There might be some faculty that thought that I was not excited about the science. So they make the assumption right away by how quiet I was. In reality, I was just stressed. I was like terrified <laughs> because I didn't even understand the language. I mean, I could speak, but I was afraid of being judged. Um, because of my accent or whatever. So it, it's like avoid, avoid making assumptions, right? Sometimes, I mean, this is very personal opinion, but if I meet Keisha for the, the first time, I don't want to go to Keisha and say, hey, Keisha, I'm here to help you. So you're already assuming that Keisha needs help. So what about, hey, Keisha, what are you? Tell me about your research, you know, engage her in the conversation of who she is as an individual. Because somebody asked me first how I can help you, I already feel, oh, why do you think I need help? So it is recognizing the individual, you know, taking the time to get to know someone, build trust. Because, I mean, to have to build trust in order to start giving advice to someone. So as a mentor, it's not just tell me about your experiments, let me see your results, this is what you're going to do next. Those in IDP, Individual Development Plans, should be like, Hey, Keisha, how are you? You know, the first part of the meeting is like, how are you doing? And then we go from there. Let's talk about your research. Let's talk about your career goals. Let's talk about conferences that you want to attend. It's important for me. It's important that I incorporate into my daily life, my culture. You know, I'm from Puerto Rico. I had to have my coffee at 3 p.m. It's sad that you cannot see my office at the moment, but... I have my holiday Puerto Rican decorations. I put my music in the corner because I need to feel that I belong here. And by me feeling that I belong to this place, people, others will feel that they also belong. So it's important that you bring your whole self and you're not afraid to do so. So as mentor, we have to encourage our students, mentees to bring their self. Because when you're happy, everything is more doesn't mean that your experiments are going to work because science science is challenging, but at least you're going to enjoy being there. And I think that's part of mentoring as well. Yeah. And also too, like I want to, he brought up the IDP. I'm actually glad that he said that because I actually enjoy filling out the IDP. IDP is the individual development plan, right? And usually you fill it out, I would say once a year, although in some places maybe once every other year or whatnot. But, you know, I really liked it because I would literally list the goals of things that I want to learn. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to go and apply for this grant. I want to try to finish a paper on XYZ. And then afterwards, you can go back to it and be able to think, okay, well, did I do that? Or you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe we should be able to do something else. You know, I think that they work very well. When both the mentor and the mentee are working towards them together as a goal, 
you know, I, I'm not sure how it works with some people, but I think when, when you work together with the mentee, then it can be very powerful to use. And, yeah. and understand that this document is modifiable. Exactly. You know, that means, yes. you know, when I started in college back in 1998, I wanted to go to medical school because that's the only career that the valedictorian from high school need to go to. But I got into college, I took biology, I realized that I, I was more into, you know, the chemistry. So I switched careers to chemistry. Did that mean that I'm a failure because I didn't pursue? No. That means that I, you are discovering your path. Uh, and you will realize that you, you might start doing something and you switch to something else. And that's totally fine. And we have to tell people that's okay. It's okay for you to start in something and then realize because probably you're starting that because that was the only career that you were aware of. And that's something the first generation students and many students have to because they're not exposed to other careers. And when you watch TVs, you see a lot of medical doctors, I mean, shows. So that's what I wanted to do. So, but then I switched. Then I did a PhD. Then I did a postdoc. And then I switched again to something more administrative. It was a failure? No. Because I'm bringing all my experiences into my position. And that's that's what you gain. You gain the experience from any step in your careers and you bring that to the next. That's what is powerful. The diversity of skills that you bring into your position is based on what you're you know, gaining throughout your life. Is this what I'm doing now the rest of my career? Maybe yes, maybe not. So you always have to be open to the possibility. And if there are training programs out there, jump into the opportunity. Get out of your comfort zone. If you get an invitation to do a workshop on X and you don't know nothing about X, say yes. And then you'll find out how to do that. And then you learn from that and you keep moving forward. Yeah, you have to think of your life as like a chapter in a book, if that makes sense. You know, so it's like, oh, you worked doing X, Y, Z. You did that very well, but then you moved on to something else. You're in a different chapter of your life. That, so, yeah, that's good. So it's very interesting that you kind of have alluded to a lot of different things. One of the things I gathered out of that was sense of belonging, IDP, and then also kind of like setting your culture for yourself and being authentic. So, you know, my thoughts on the IDP is really, you know, the same. I actually try to have my trainees in the lab do it every three months. So we try to revisit every four times, four times a year, because I'm always challenging them to do more you know, as they accomplish things so that they're under, I guess, healthy pressure. And then they're able to modify their plan as needed if there's some things where at this season, it may not be the right place for that. But, you know, one of the things that I I really liked about was talking about authentic self. And I wanted to kind of ask a little bit more about that as we start to kind of wrap up this conversation on first-gen men mentoring. What do you mean by, you know, your authentic self? Because I guess authentic self means different things to different people because we have an institutional authentic thing, which is the climate of the institution, but we don't necessarily have some cultural norms that allow for individuals to express themselves in the way that they would like to. How can first-gen individuals be comforted to be able to be their authentic selves when sometimes maybe the environment doesn't allow for that? And then also, how do we support these individuals through 
challenging times when certain schools may not have the resources to be able to accommodate first-gen students just yet. Where could they go, like maybe in Twitterverse, uh, to be able to find the support that they need or any other social media platforms, per se? Yeah, I'll say, like, when I moved I mean, to the United States, I was very afraid of first talking because of my accents to, to feel that people would judge me. I try to, I mean, assimilate uh, to, to a new place, right? But I, I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel, you know, I remember in grad school, the days that were the most, the happiest moment for me was on the day that was a Latin music place that I went there and I forgot that I was a scientist and I was just celebrating with people that look like me. So sometimes your community is not in the institution. It might be in the city, in the town. So it's, that's what's important that to reach out to mentors outside your work environment, right? So for example, I, I tell you, you know, in order to, to advance in your career, you have to move out of your comfort zone. But you have to have that comfort zone to go in when needed. And in grad school, that comfort zone for me was those Thursday nights that I went and, and danced to, to salsa, merengue, bachata. So that was my moment to kind of like my my well-being routine. Uh, it, it's important. Also, as institutions, we sometimes, you know, we, we do a lot of trainings in you know, surviving grad school. And it's putting the pressure on the student. You have to be strong. It's important that us as institution make changes that is not all on the students or the faculty. Or oh, the faculty, if you want to make it, you have to reach out. No, let's support them. So it is important that not all the pressure falls. I mean, it's a two-way street, right? Not all the pressure should fall on the mentees or the faculty, but not all the pressure should fall in the, in the institution. It has to be both ways. So it's important that that we take into consideration that when we're planning, when we're making these strategic plans for the institution, that we take into account to provide additional support. Not just, I mean, for the students, yes, but also for the mentors that are mentoring the students. So there is a mentoring training, support for the mentors, because as a first new assistant professor, for example, you had to build a lab. You had to recruit people and you had to buy equipment. You had to set up a research program. You had to, I mean, probably be in admissions committee. You might have to teach a course. Then you might need to navigate the system. Then, then you, I mean, so it's a lot of pressure on the faculty. Training programs do not tell you how to prepare a budget. So you have to learn that. Training programs in the PhD don't tell your postdoc how to be a mentor. So you also are learning. So it, and it's a lot of pressure for, for faculty. So it's important that institutions take that into account when they're bringing somebody in. Because it's not about just bringing a new faculty in. It's like, I want to bring the faculty in and the faculty is going to be successful. Because if the faculty is not successful, we also as an institution are failing. So it's important if we bring students in, that we also think about how to provide an environment in where all students will be successful. Because if not, as an institution, we are not doing our best. Sometimes, I mean, individuals will move on to other things, and that's perfectly fine because everybody is in control of their career. 
but at least as an institution, we should be doing our best. And our best today might not be enough in a month or a year from now. It's constant, constant feedback from the community in order to move forward. Yes, and I agree with him, especially when we're talking about the authentic self. I mean, I think I want to split it sort of talking about myself, but also I would say some of the people that I've mentored. So for me, at least, I change actually the environment of where I sit. I've put up posters of things of, you know, like a front cover of a journal one time had actually several pictures of hijabi women. So that was impressive to me as a Muslim. And, you know, being able to see those women doing science, even with the full hijab, that's important. I also have, I also put other things up on the walls, pictures of my experiments and so forth. But it's sort of like, I sort of made that area, my little area. And, you know, I always, I always think that that's important to think about and do. And also too, as he said, like the music in my group, we had several people that, we agreed as a group, we would listen to music together for an hour. So every day we play different, I guess, radio tunes or whatever, you know, everything from Hindu music to just classic pop or whatever, just for an hour. And I thought that was pretty cool as a group, but that was a way of all of us sort of just hanging out and having our own authentic self, if that makes sense. But also, too, I just want to point out, I feel like for some people, in order for them to be able to accept someone else, they actually need to mentor people that look different from them, if that makes sense. One of the best times when I worked at Vanderbilt was when I had a Black student that I mentored. I mentored a girl from Egypt, actually, who also wore a hijab. I also mentored a girl from Puerto Rico. And, you know, in doing that, that helps me and them. So all of those people, they were all first gen as well. But I get to experience them and they get to experience us. And I feel like if you don't actually seek out someone who's different from you, you cannot really mentor people that well, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't want to like make it sound so negative, but if you don't do that, if you're always seeking out someone who is exactly like you, you're not that great of a mentor because you need to be able to work with different people. So I guess what you're saying is you're challenging the public to be able to mentor individuals that look the same, but also different so that they can get different perspectives so that they can engage differently so that they can fill other people's shoes. I guess you would say that's kind of like gaining some social equity, if you will, to really understand yeah, yeah. how individuals are. And so that's really, you know, I think the key points that are driving home is really you have to create cultural equity, you have to create social equity, and you have to create monetary and other resources that is in the form of equity that would be for individuals that know and individuals that don't know. And maybe mentors could be able to have a separate set of training expectations that could be attached in a, you know, part of the, the guide for faculty and postdocs that come in and part of the training sessions. Maybe there could be a session on first generation mentoring and mentoring in general so that we're better prepared. I really have enjoyed this conversation today, and I, I kind of want to ask you several different things. What would be your take-home message to help individuals that are listening to this podcast about how to get the most out of their mentoring and how could they really help first-gen individuals 
And then my other question of all is kind of, what are you drinking? Because I'm very curious, you know, because at this podcast, you know, we talk a lot. So it's always nice to refresh with the beverage. So I'm curious about it because it'll help me understand a little bit about your personality and the audience as well. So Diet Pepsi. Um, and why Diet Pepsi? What what makes Diet Pepsi so special? I always drink diet, actually. So I always it's either a Diet Pepsi or a Diet Dr. Pepper. And the place that I went to, they offer that. But I think it has a higher caffeine. That's what I think it is. The caffeine in it is what drives it as well. (laughs) Yeah, but the take-home message, I think for you, you need to be able to explore different people, listen to them, actually, listen to what they're excited about, you know, what they want to do. You may actually find out that this person is interested in a certain disease that actually it's like, wow, you know, if if I knew that, I could actually start that up or I could do that. And that's something that's impressive or powerful. You know, I did that recently where I, I told that to my current boss. And actually, afterwards, we had a great conversation. But usually people don't do that. <laughs> people don't do that beforehand. So, you know, actually talking and listening to people and asking them, about themselves and about what they want to learn. So here, I mean, drinking, I mean, coffee. I'm a heavy, I mean, coffee drinker. I feel it just bring me back home. It feels, I mean, in a way, if I feel empowered when I have a highlighter and a coffee cup with me. For some reason, I, I do it, I mean, too much, I think, too much coffee. But but I think it's something that I, I do enjoy. I enjoy because I feel that I'm back Oh man, I drink coffee from Puerto Rico. So every time that I travel, I bring a lot of coffee with me or my friends and family always, I mean, chip some coffee my way. Uh, Take home message for the mentors is like, it's important for you to understand that no one is perfect. There is no a perfect mentor out there. But it's important for you as a mentor to keep learning. And mentors need mentors. So it's important for mentors to ask mentors especially if you're a new faculty right and you have students for the first time and you're experiencing something new reach out to mentors not because you're a faculty now you don't need mentor i mean you probably need more mentors so it's important that you keep expanding your network don't free don't be afraid of asking questions know that you're going to mess up (laughs) but it's important not to do it twice right it's important to learn from the experience be empathic. I mean, so just take the time to listen, understand that everybody comes from a similar, different background. Everybody have a different walks of life. So it's important for you to understand that maybe that if it was trivial for you, maybe it's not for your mentees. Not also because it was really hard for you, you had to make it harder for your mentees. So, you know, it's, it's important also that. And for the mentees, it's important that to understand that it's not everything is not your mentor's responsibility. <laughs> So you as a mentee have to be proactive. You as a mentee have to take control of your career. You have to lay out your expectations. I mean, what do you expect from your mentor? But also understand what is expected from you as a mentee. Understand that it's okay to change careers. It's okay to for an experiment not to work. It's okay. I mean, I got bad grades. I mean, when I was in college, it's on you to identify the resources to do better. So it's important also that, and to prioritize your well-being. Sometimes, I mean, we're just focusing so much on the academic or, or the work that we forget about ourselves. And it's important that you put that first 
And it's important that if, if something is not going well, it's important that you communicate that with your mentors. Because sometimes, I mean, we tend to hide away when some things are not working well. And those are the moments that you have to probably reach out more. So it's important to understand that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to reach out for help. But what is not okay is not to take control of your career. We all went through the process. I mean, the three in this call, we went through that process. So we know it's challenging, but we did it. And we're here and we're still learning and we're still, we still have goals. And I'm pretty sure Ajit and Keisha, every time that we accomplish something, we set up a new goal. It's important that you do that. So thank you. Thank you. This has been a very, very empowering space. Thank you so very much. I mean, we couldn't have done it without you. Both of y'all, thank you for taking your time. One thing I just wanted to tell the audience before we left was just realizing that first gen spans beyond just undergraduate and graduate school and postdocs. It also spans to medical school and fellowship years as well and residency. So be aware, mentors, that you may have a fellow that comes to the lab that's never done research before, brand new and doesn't understand really much. You know, take your time, be patient. And remember, first gen students whose parents that don't have bachelor's degrees are less likely to apply to MD, PhD programs rather than MD programs. So there's a lack of diversity there among uh, scientists. That was in Nature Medicine in May 2021. And it was by Brianna Christophers et al. And so I just want you all to be aware of that as well, because it's very important to raise the question about diverse candidates and pushing those through, because a lot of first-gen individuals are from diverse backgrounds, and they may not know a lot of things just because of some of their unique experiences that they have. And it's not a bad thing. It's just something that they're not accustomed to. And I wanted the audience to kind of know a little bit about some stats before we close. So just remember also when you're mentoring, first-gen students have other characteristics in common that influence how they experience college and life after graduate graduation. So don't only talk about the first-gen status as a minority, be able to talk about them holistically. This is just a point that was raised earlier. I just want to re-emphasize that. And then I also want you all to be aware that the individuals that are first-gen are from a diverse group of backgrounds, but 8% of Asian students are from first-gen homes, 19% from African-American homes, 33% from Latino student homes, and then 37% for white students as well. And so if you think about it in the context of percentage of population, you can kind of see the overall effect of how minorities are affected a little bit more. So I just want you all to kind of just be aware that we have to be able to raise these things in conversations when we visit our communities, just not in the context of science Twitter or in social media or in our homes that we have but also going back to your community and reaching out to create those opportunities again. So this will decrease the level of imposter syndrome that was mentioned earlier when you can see someone that looks like you and create it as a cultural norm and create that equity within society, it really will help to build that community. So don't forget to do outreach and give back because we all have to do it anyway for service, but why not do something that we all care about and love? And then a couple other facts that I just find that's just so important. Remember, about 30% of first-year students, excuse me, from freshman year in college are first-gen students. So just be aware of that. So this is super important to think about and something that we all must come to grips with. And my last thing is just to talk about the resources just a little bit more. First-gen college students tend to be 
part time because they have other things going on as well. And so that means that they're probably helping to create economic wealth within their home as well as their families. And so have consideration for that. Be flexible. Sometimes you may have to give a research project that's different. That may be more, you know, data analysis so that they can get that research experience and just be creative and flexible. Sometimes it's that way with anybody. Doesn't matter about race or ethnicity. Everybody needs that type of help. And remember, all groups have first gen experiences. And this is something that we all have to reflect. And this is why we have to have diverse mentors as well as mentees that we're training. And so this kind of ties into a lot of things that were said. And I'd like to thank Keisha and Arnaldo for being able to do this today. This was a fabulous discussion and it was done in a way that was very light, easy on the ears. And I really appreciate that. It was kind of just something that you want to kind of experience. And thank you for sharing Diet Coke and coffee. Now I know a little bit more about you and why you may drink the things that you do. And I'm drinking right now just flavored water, I'm trying to work on my health. So I'm just slowly working on just drinking water without any flavor. But, you know, it's a start. So anyway, thank you all for listening to STEM Tea Podcast. And I would like for each of y'all to say your handles for social media so that they can find you and follow you because that's important because the conversation can extend just beyond this podcast where they can interact with you. Keisha, could you tell us about your potential social media handles that you would like to share in Arnaldo as well? Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. So on Twitter, I'm Dr. Mito Oxfoss. <laughs> yeah, and I'm on Twitter. I'm ADS underscore PhD. Follow us. Happy to help in any way we can. <laughs>